All right, well, we want to welcome you this morning to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and it's great to, uh, to come together once a week and just a fellowship. It's so wonderful to see everybody talking and fellowshipping and hugging and shaking hands, and uh, it's just what the body of Christ is supposed to be, and I'm, I'm kind of have that on my mind because I've been studying Acts, and this morning we're going to begin to talk about some of the uh, characteristics of the model church in our worship hour, and one of those that we're going to talk about today is community, and so I've been thinking a lot about community. In fact, I wish I could just go straight to Acts this morning, but then that might mess up our schedule or so. We'll, we'll stick with uh, Babylon. That's our topic today as we, uh, as we continue to talk about what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. We should finish up the study of Babylon today and kind of wrap up our overall discussion of uh, the tribulation period, and then next week we're going to talk about the second coming of our Lord and all that's involved uh, with that. Looking forward to that, been kind of putting some thoughts together for that as well. I always like to mention the topic for my Tuesday podcast on the Christian Underground News Network. This past week we talked about how to prepare for the rapture. So if you're uh, if you want to check out our podcast, by the way, I haven't mentioned in a while, but we have a free app at Not By Works Ministries. Uh, you can go to our website and it'll tell you how to download it. But that's the best way to stay in touch with all of our podcast videos, uh, devotional articles, everything we do, schedule. Um, but you can find this podcast on how to prepare for the rapture anywhere that podcasts are played. Just search for Not By Works uh, Ministries. Don't forget Wednesday nights, midweek. If you enjoy Sundays and you need a midweek boost, come out on Wednesday nights. We have a great time of fellowship discussion, a little more informal uh, than our Sunday services, but a great time of discussion. We're talking about how to read and understand the Bible. We're right now going through 24 rules for Bible interpretation. We've gotten through six of them, and we'll pick up that uh, study uh, next time. So this is the 16th uh, discussion of the tribulation. I think last week I mentioned it was 14. That was a mistake, uh, but this is our 16th, and uh, this ought to wrap up our discussion of the tribulation as we talk about Babylon. So to review, Babylon is the counterpart to Jerusalem during this final uh, battle of the ages, this final lead up to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. Um, so just as there will be a reemergence of uh, the Roman Empire, as Daniel uh, talked about, there will be a reemergence of Babylon. And in that final seven-year period, which we've talked a lot about, the tribulation, the, the 70th week of Daniel, it's called, uh, Babylon will, will kind of rise from the ashes, literally, geographically, and take on center stage from Satan's perspective. Remember, Satan will indwell the Antichrist and the two human counterparts, the Antichrist and his second-in-command, the false prophet, will be ruling the one-world government. We don't know if they will institute or inaugurate the one world government. It's conceivable that the one world government could already be in place and the Antichrist just takes the helm of it. But one way or the other, we will experience that seven years of uh, tyranny under the satanically influenced Antichrist. And that will emanate from Babylon. Now, last week we looked at Revelation 14, and this is the first reference to Babylon in uh, the uh, book of Revelation, and it's in the lead up to the second coming and the battle of Armageddon 
And here is where we find that Babylon is fallen, and it's repeated for emphasis. So uh, the, the sort of the capital city of the satanic regime of the Antichrist will come crashing down. And uh, this will be all part of the lead up to the campaign of Armageddon when Christ comes back. By the way, according to Revelation 19 and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know that we as the bride of Christ will be coming back with him riding on white horses. So we will have been rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that seven-year tribulation. Uh, but we will come back with him to, to help rule and reign during uh, the kingdom. And we're going to talk a lot about the kingdom in the coming uh, weeks. So we were sort of asking the question, uh, since Babylon is one of those terms that can have metaphoric meaning, just to refer to the seed of evil, or kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, you see them used metaphorically sometimes, especially in the New Testament. We want to kind of examine the biblical data and see which nation, city, or region is the best candidate to fulfill the prophecies regarding uh, end times uh, Babylon. And so we said last week <clears throat> that, and I'm going to make the case this morning, that essentially this last bullet point here, I believe Babylon is going to be a uh, combination of a political, religious, and commercial center. It will definitely involve, we can't get around it, it'll definitely involve a literal geographic Babylon being rebuilt right where it was in you know, the ancient times. And remember last week we talked about the Tower of Babel and Nimrod and all of that. Uh, so it's, it's a long-standing throughout human history counterpart to God's holy land, the, the uh, Jerusalem and, and Mount Zion. So I believe it'll definitely have a literal physical uh, aspect, and I believe that's where the political center will be. But I do think that since it's a global kingdom, <clears throat> there are going to be other outposts that are part of the Babylon system that will involve, be involved in the uh, Antichrist reign. One of those will be religious, and I believe that will be from Rome. Uh, and then the other, which is the, the, the most uh, ambiguous one, is sort of the economic or commercial center during the, the final tribulation period. We know that there will be a one-world economic system, as long, along with everything else, one-world religious system, one-world political system. We know that everyone's going to have to have the mark of the beast to buy and sell, and those believers who get saved after the rapture and are, you know, hiding out and trying to withstand the, the satanic tyranny and, and, and don't take the mark of the beast, obviously, they will have a hard time getting food. They'll have to live off the land and, you know, beg, borrow, and steal. Um, but for the general public, unbelievers, they'll have to have uh, this mark of the beast to be able to buy and sell and be part of the system. Now, if you think about the study of the New Testament for the last 2,000 years, especially among those who take it in its literal, grammatical, historical approach, and therefore understand the distinction between the church and Israel and the future for national Israel and the literal tribulation period, you can imagine how, in, you know, even as recently as 100 years ago, it would be difficult to imagine or conceive of how the Antichrist could... Uh, rule over a regime that tracks everybody on earth, wherever they are, in every corner of the world, and 
can control whether or not they can buy or sell. I mean, before technology, for example, the only thing people probably could conceive of is some type of massive manpower where at every little, you know, Circle K, you had a government representative with an AK-47 there checking papers. But now, obviously, it's much easier to see. In fact, we don't even give it a second thought. Oh, yeah, they can track everybody in the world. Of course they can. We know that now. We know that because, you know, they're already doing it with national ID cards. The United States now has a national ID card. I don't know if you realize that or not, but they kind of brought it in the back door by federally mandating that every one of the states use a, a consistent model with a chip in it for your driver's license. And I can remember when this was being rolled out 10 years ago, I was still traveling all the time by plane. And uh, we lived in Illinois at the time, and they were one of the last ones to do it. And it got to the point where if you didn't have the new government, the national approved driver's license, you couldn't get on a plane. Now, fortunately, I had a passport, and so I would use that. But uh, now, if you look at your driver's license, they're all consistent across all the states. And that is de facto a national ID card. Well, it's only one small step from there to a global ID card. And they've tried other things in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, India and Africa, for example, in conjunction with massive forced vaccinations have rolled out uh, in, implanted chips and things that can read your data and you scan it and it tells you everything about you. So there's any number of ways that technology can be used to track every uh, human being and it's, it's not that difficult, frankly. Um, so I do believe there's going to be a financial center and uh, I'll come back to that at the end tonight, but I want to, or this morning, but I want to briefly, we won't have time, I don't want this to turn into an in-depth, down-into-the-weeds study of Babylon. There's some great resources out there about this. I'm going to mention a couple of them. But I want to do a high-level survey of the key passages in both the Old and New Testament that talk about Babylon to sort of show you why I think it's going to be a literal rebuilt Babylon. The first one is Isaiah 13. And the first part of that chapter refers prophetically to the future tribulation. And the significance of it, if you compare this with, say, Revelation and other uh, end times passages, is you've got uh, the reference to a woman in labor, you've got the extermination of sinners, which is certainly something that's going to happen at the final judgment when Christ comes back. Not the final final, but the sheep and the goats judgment when all of the goats are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, you've got cosmic signs, which are mentioned throughout the Bible in conjunction with the end times uh, events. Uh, and then, of course, the a global uh, punishment. The second part of Isaiah 13 is local and historical in scope. And you, you, this is not uncommon. We see this frequently in the Old Testament prophets, where the, 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 the gaze at first is on your immediate context, and then it shifts, or vice versa, to a prophetic context. So God throughout the ages has certainly prophesied again and again uh, immediate judgment and consequence on his nation Israel or on the enemies of Israel in certain cases, say like Nineveh. But uh, it's not uncommon to see this shift. We see uh, the same thing in Daniel chapter 11. The first part of Daniel chapter 11 uh, deals with you know, Antiochus Epiphanes and a more near-term prophecy, and then it shifts to end times prophecy and the Antichrist. But in the second part of Isaiah, you see the Medes conquering the city. Uh, remember, Isaiah time frame-wise is prior 
to the Babylonian captivity for sure, depending on what part of Isaiah you're in. It's also prior to the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrian captivity was 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom Samaria fell. And then the uh, 586 B.C. is when Judah fell in the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. So in Isaiah 13, he predicts the permanent destruction of Babylon. So by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know this has to be the end times because you can't have Babylon permanently destroyed 700 years before Christ and then come back again, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So chapter 14 of Isaiah also uh, plays into this discussion. It's talking about Israel's regathering into the land. Remember, uh, Jesus himself, as well as several Old Testament prophets, even going back to Deuteronomy, talk about how it, when the kingdom comes and the final inauguration of the, the kingdom age has come, Israel will finally be brought back into their land. She's been displaced again and again, right? Uh, you think about, again, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, but there will be this great end times uh, regathering. And I, we've looked at it often, but I always like to read the passage in Matthew 24 where uh, Jesus says, this is Jesus speaking on the Mount of Olives just before his crucifixion. He says, He will send his angels a great sound of, with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, in the context he's talking about Israel, from the four winds of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. And this, you know, Deuteronomy 30, verse 3 talks about it. Isaiah 27, 13 talks about this. Uh, all the New Covenant passages talk about it. So Isaiah is just repeating the, the, the same prophecy. But in this context, the fall of the king of Babylon and the ultimate universal peace on the earth come up. So once again, you see Babylon in the context of end times events, the end of the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the inauguration of the kingdom. Um, as a side note, uh, and because I've taught so much about the Luciferian conspiracy through the years, I always like to mention that the term Lucifer occurs in Isaiah 14, uh, in verses 12 to 21. And I always like to point out that contextually, there's nothing that indicates that's Satan. And so we can't be dogmatic that Lucifer is the name of Satan. But what we can be dogmatic about is that from the earliest days, even going back to before Christianity, the Satan worshipers, the, the Satanic elite that are trying to take over the world at Satan's behest, have referred to themselves as Luciferians. So whatever we think historically and, and literally and grammatically from this passage Luciferianism and Lucifer as a reference to Satan is very much a legitimate use of the term because historically that's the way they've uh, referred to it. Uh, so if you summarize these, what we find is there's a clear connection to the literal geographic historical Babylon uh, and a literal grammatical historical approach. That's a term that we are using on Wednesday nights in our study as the only proper way to read and understand the Bible, literally, grammatically, historically. Uh, but that approach indicates that geographic Babylon will play a role in the end times. Now, if you look at Jeremiah's prophecy, <clears throat> it comes up again in Jeremiah 50 to 51. You see sudden destruction. You see the permanent destruction of Babylon. Believers are fleeing. You see Israel's regathering. And then uh, Jeremiah also has some new covenant implications of 
to complete global righteousness and, and, and the types of things that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah talks about you know, earlier on in chapter uh, 31. So uh, this has to be end times because the new covenant isn't inaugurated until uh, the, the return of Christ. Now, I know that might sound strange to some of you because we've been taught for a couple thousand years now that the new covenant was inaugurated with Christ, but it wasn't. And we talked about this uh, early on in this series. We're, what, 42 or some odd messages into this series, so it's been a long time. But you can go back and watch that or just search our uh, YouTube channel or uh, our website for New Covenant, and I've spoken on this many, many times. We have some DVDs about it as well. But God's covenant program that began with the unconditional promise to Abraham and was amplified through a secondary land, seed, and uh, blessing promises, the, what's often called the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant, then the uh, Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant, uh, that all of those covenants have been ratified, but they have not been inaugurated yet. That In fact, the last one of those four covenants, the Abrahamic, the New Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the Land Covenant, the last one to be ratified was the New Covenant. That's why Jesus said just hours before he was betrayed in the garden, and we're going to be celebrating this this morning, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. So he, he, he ratified it at the cross. But ratifying a covenant and inaugurating a covenant are two entirely different things. And the same thing is true as an analogy of an election. You know, you ratify the results typically in, what is it, December. The election's November, you ratify it in December. The inauguration is in January, right? Same thing is true of God's covenants. Yeah? So I just want to be sure I understand this new covenant that Christ talks about in communion is for the nation of Israel since the church doesn't exist in that so the comment is the new covenant is for the nation of Israel since the church didn't exist at the moment. Well, the fact is all of the covenants were made with Israel, but the, the recipients of them, the blessings of them, are global in scope. So when the new covenant and all of the God's covenant program is inaugurated at the return of Christ, it will be global. Christ will rule over the whole world. You'll have the lion laying down with the lamb and those types of things, right? So it's, uh, it's not just for Israel. They are you know, the sort of the keepers of the covenant, if you will, and Christ is going to rule from Israel in Jerusalem. And um, remember Jesus said, I think it was to the Samaritan woman, uh, or the woman at the well, he said, salvation is of the Jews. Remember when he talked about worship with her? I think that's John 4. And what he means by that is that God's, you know, program to bless the world and bring the world full circle back to pre-fall state comes through Israel. So it's not that the new covenant was not relevant to the church. We're going to be bearing the blessings of it and participate in it too. But my point is what we're seeing today is not the blessings of the new covenant. It can't be. If you read the passages in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, it's not Nothing like that's happening today. For example, in, when the new covenant is inaugurated, uh, easy, uh, Jeremiah tells us, no one will need to teach his neighbor because everyone on earth will know about the Lord. Well, how do you reconcile that with the Great Commission, which we're talking about this morning in our Acts study, where we're commanded to go teach everybody? 
Or in Ezekiel it says when the new covenant is inaugurated, everybody who's a believer will act righteously and not sin. Well, anybody ever sin? <laughs> I mean, we can, collect, we can easily say the new covenant is not enforced today. Now, through the years, because there are a few references to the new covenant in the New Testament, primarily in Hebrews, which where Paul is writing to Israel to remind them that this Jesus whom they're thinking about abandoning is going to be the mediator of the new covenant. He never says the new covenant's in place. He's just talking about Jesus' connection to the new covenant. But because there are references in the New Testament to the new covenant, people have come up with all different ideas on how the church relates to the new covenant. And uh, the most uh, uh, common one of which is that the new covenant's enforced today, right? But none of the God's covenant program that emanated from Genesis 12 is enforced today. Israel's not in the land today. Christ is not on the Davidic throne today. And we're not experiencing new covenant blessings today. The church is a foreshadowing or a foretaste of what life will be like when the new covenant comes. And so, yes, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but we don't always obey. We can still yield to the flesh. Uh, you know, we have other... Uh, identity, we have unmitigated access to the Lord through the Holy Spirit, those types of things. But all of that is intended to be a, a foretaste of the glory to come so that when Christ comes back, as Paul describes in Romans, uh, I think it's Romans 11, that it'll, it'll provoke them to jealousy, that they'll say, oh, we want what the church had, but it won't be the fullness of it. The, the church is, is a mystery. It's something unique, standalone, uh, and it's... Uh, you know, if we go back, I think I have the uh, the chart here. Let's see. If we go back to this uh, Daniel's plan, remember the church is in green, and the church is a, uh, the fancy word is an intercalation, but it just means a gap in God's program. And after the church is raptured, God's program is going to be completed, and then the new covenant will be inaugurated at the second coming. So while there are similarities today, between what we are experiencing in this present age that is unprecedented, the role of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the access to God, none of that is exactly what the Bible talks about in terms of the New Covenant. So that's why <clears throat> the New Covenant uh, blessings are, uh, you know, implications are important because whenever you see <clears throat> New Covenant discussion, that clearly is pointing towards the, uh, the end times. So... <clears throat> One resource that I highly recommend is Charlie Dyer's book, The Identity of Babylon. <clears throat> this is actually a, a article, I believe, a journal article. But he's written some stuff about Babylon, and he's a great scholar. Uh, but he, he kind of points out some really interesting parallels between Jeremiah and Revelation as it relates to Babylon. Now, uh, <clears throat> remember in my five steps in the Bible study process, those of you that come on Wednesday nights, or if you're watching those videos, the first step is to deal with the passage in context. The second step is to then expand the focus and do some cross-referencing, and that's what we're seeing here. But uh, again, this seems clear enough that he's got to have Babylon in mind in both contexts. Um, so you see the association with the golden cup, the dwelling on many waters, intoxicating the nations, obviously it's the same name. Stone is sinking into the Euphrates, sudden destruction. This is what we see in Revelation with profound, you know, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It's just a climactic moment. Uh, destroyed by fire, it's final and uninhabitable, it's deserved. God's people flee, 
and heaven rejoices. So if we summarize Jeremiah, we see the context is purely historical. It's pre-exilic with no explicit end times overtures. But the parallels make it clear that ultimately it will find its fulfillment in the final uh, prophetic uh, destruction of Babylon in the eschaton, eschaton meaning end times. Then we see Zechariah 5. Uh, this is one of Zechariah's night visions. This is after <coughs> the return from exile. And he presents Babylon as the seat of end times wickedness. Uh, so I've got another chart, this one here uh, by Mark Hitchcock. Uh, who's a friend of mine, and I've had the chance to work with him several times. Uh, we, he uh, speaks in Tulsa, gave a great message in Tulsa this past uh, time uh, at the Mid-America Prophecy Conference, where I also spoke a couple of times. And I just really respect him. He's out of uh, Oklahoma City, I think, pastors of church there. But once again, just like we saw with Jeremiah, we see some parallels as it relates to Babylon. Uh, the woman sitting in a basket uh, where we see a woman sitting on the beast uh, in Revelation. Uh, we see emphasis on commerce in both passages. Uh, we see the focus on false worship. Uh, we see the woman being taken to Babylon in Zechariah, the woman called Babylon in Revelation. So uh, both the original context of Zechariah as well as Revelation 17 and 18 indicate that Historic Babylon will return in the end times. And then you come to Babylon in Revelation. As I mentioned, the first reference to it is in Revelation 14.8. <clears throat> Babylon is fallen. The angel announces the destruction of the city. And in the flow of thought, and we made a big deal about this when I talked about this passage, mm -hmm. uh, this comes right after Revelation 13 which describes the Antichrist. We get a lot of our understanding and detail about the characteristics of the Antichrist from Revelation 13. So it makes sense then that as we're leading up to the bold judgments and the final battle of Armageddon, he would go segue right from that into the destruction of the Antichrist's seat of power. In chapter 16, we have the seventh of the seven bold judgments where God pours out his wrath on Babylon. 17 and 18 describe this judgment in detail. <clears throat> My friend Dr. Andy Woods has done a lot of research on uh, Babylon, and he taught, he taught on Revelation 17 and 18 the last time we were together at a conference in Duluth. But it seems clear that in some measure the little horn of the fourth world empire, Rome, is in view, and Rome and Babylon keep kind of coming up interchangeably. So that's why I'm going to give you the conclusion I'm going to give you in a moment. But back to Revelation 17, <clears throat> Babylon is written upon the forehead <clears throat> of the great harlot who rides the beast. We saw that parallel with Zechariah a moment ago. Uh, but the evil woman symbolizes the religious symbol uh, system rather of Babylon. Uh, and uh, the angel informs John that the kings of the earth had committed adultery with the woman. In other words, they had become a part of this religious system which she symbolized. And so he has some harsh words to say for them. Uh, uh, the many waters alludes to the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist in chapter 13. And uh, color scarlet alludes to the red dragon that empowered the beast uh, out of the sea also in chapter 13. So what's happening during the tribulation is, again, you've got a one world religion. So all of these <clears throat> previously 
conflicting religions, Islam, Judaism, apostate Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of these different religions are coming together and signing on with the great harlot, with the Antichrist, and, and becoming part of this one world system, ultimately to worship Satan, which is what he wanted all along. It's what Satan wanted from the moment he got kicked out of heaven. And he's not going to stop until he's cast into the eternal lake of fire where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, so the Antichrist is in view in chapter 17 here. The king's rising out of the fourth world empire. Babylon in Revelation 17 is connected in some way to Rome because of the uh, dual use of the phrase the great city. So the woman is clearly tied to the city and the beast in a significant way. And it's got to be, it seems to me, a religious one. So Revelation 17, just to summarize, the concept of a harlot coming, committing fornication, leading others to do so, is a common metaphor of false religion throughout the Old Testament. When Israel would adopt the pagan religious practices of uh, ancient Near Eastern lands around them, they were committing adultery, is what God frequently says. Hosea, obviously, is a massive, uh, profound example. <clears throat> We know that by the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist has moved his headquarters to Israel and set himself up as God. Because if you think about the three aspects of this end times regime, the geographic, political, like rulership, the economic, financial, and then the religious, the religious is the ultimate motivator. But people won't realize that at the time. And we tend to focus on all the practical implications of control and tyranny and loss of freedoms and then economic and so forth. But let's not forget from Satan's perspective, it's always been about religion. He did not want people to worship God, the creator of the universe. He wanted people to worship him. So he puts this plan in motion through the Antichrist. And once he's got everything in place... Then he desecrates the temple, enters the temple himself, declares himself to be God, and says, you must now worship me from now on. And then we've got three and a half years left, and things get worse and worse and worse, leading up to those uh, bold judgments that, uh, of course, uh, are you know, leading up to the battle of uh, Armageddon, which you see here where the arrow is pointing. So those seven bold judgments down at the bottom there in blue as we've said, are not drawn to scale. They all probably happened in the last two or three days of the seven-year tribulation as a part of uh, the Battle of Armageddon. So, uh, the, and then you get to uh, chapter uh, 18. So back to religious Babylon. Uh, there's an internal battle between the beast and the city. What happened in Rome is natural since Rome has long been the religious capital of the world and the beachhead of satanic activity uh, through the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there's also pseudepigraphal evidence from the late first century that Rome was referred to as Babylon. So there you go. As long ago as nearly 2,000 years ago, there have been this uh, sort of uh, interplay between Rome and Babylon. I think they're both clearly going to play a role uh, in the end times. You get to chapter 18, uh, it highlights the commercial aspect of Babylon rather than the religious one. And chapter 18 is where I begin, 
to see some parallels with the United States. You know, remember, you've got the geographic center in Babylon. You've got the religious center in Rome, and then it's moved to Jerusalem. But where is the financial center? So uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But uh, you've got in chapter 18 the final judgment of the Antichrist, and it leads right into chapter 19, the second coming uh, of Christ. So the question then is, could the United States be part of this Babylon system in the final seven-year period? Uh, and if so, in what way? Well, again, all of this is speculation, this part. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that Rome and Babylon are in the picture. I mean, that couldn't be more clear from Daniel. Uh, the question is, is there some other part of, in the world, some other place in the world that plays into the financial or economic or commercial aspect of it? Um, well, when you think about uh, technology, and, and Silicon Valley and all that the U.S. is doing leading the way with technology in terms of DARPA and Skunk Works and all of those agencies that are out there uh, doing new and, and amazing things. When you think about the financial headquarters, Wall Street and all of the big corp globalist corporations, if they're not, uh, weren't started here, they certainly have an office here uh, in the United States, mostly in New York City. Uh, so... Let's look at some, uh, again, just some observations. And this all assumes that the end times w would happen soon. I mean, obviously, if the Lord tarries is coming, it seems like America is really on, you know, life support at this point for a number of reasons, morally, economically, politically, our freedoms are being destroyed. Uh, by the way, I might mention that, um, you know, people... We're singing the praises of the Supreme Court ruling uh, this week. Uh, I, I, I don't see it that way at all. Right. I, I think it was a joke that the Supreme Court even took up the case. They should have laughed it out of the room and said, this is not a constitutional issue, right? right? But the fact that they took it up is actually a bad thing. It's kind of like all these conservative governors in red states that were issuing executive orders, and everybody was going, yay, Greg Abbott, yay, DeSantis, right? Well... You're setting a precedent. What happens when a bad guy gets in there and he issues an executive order, right? Now what are you going to say? It's like during the Obama administration, everybody called him the dictator-in-chief. Then Trump gets in and issues all kinds of decrees and dictates, and everybody says, oh, it's okay. I guess it's okay to be a dictator if you're a Republican, but not if you're a Democrat or something. So we got to be careful about the precedent it sets. The Supreme Court had no business weighing in on whether companies can force you to stick a needle in your arm. That, that's an inalienable right. That's not something that should have even had any constitutional implications. But anyway, I don't even know how I got off uh, on all that. But, oh, the United States is, is really, I believe, not to be a doomsdayer, but I, I think we're in dire straits. Uh, financially, that's certainly true. Uh, politically, like I said, our Bill of Rights is being shredded. Uh, religiously and morally, it's corrupt. Uh, we're normalizing aberrant, evil, immoral behavior. So there's by no means a certainty that we're going to see America still be around. But again, just playing, playing this out, if, for example, the rapture were to happen today and the Antichrist were soon thereafter to take control of the world, he's going to need a financial center. Well, right now, there can be no doubt that that center 
emanates from the United States, right? So, that being said, let's make some comparisons with Revelation 18. Uh, it's a deep water port city. Well, that's certainly true of America. It's a com key commercial player and engine of wealth for the world's economy. That's certainly true of America. It's a principal, uh, it's a principal commodities trading center. Definitely true of America. Uh, it's a leading import center uh, and consumption. <laughs> I mean, we are definitely into consumption, right? We used to be the other way around. We were a great exporter, but now we're an importer. Uh, it's a center for merchandising and marketing. Uh, it's a extremely wealthy. Uh, it's a very sensualist, sensual and materialistic lifestyle. That certainly describes America. High standard of living by comparison to other parts of the world. It's noted for drugs and drug use. You see that pharmakeia coming up, the Greek word that we're, from which we get pharmacy in Revelation 18.23. Literally means sorcery. And by the way, if you haven't done the research on the, the history of, really the history of medicine, but especially the history of pharmaceuticals, which is only about 100 years old. It starts in the first part of the 20th century. Uh, you need to look into that. I touch on it at length in one of the videos in Spirit of the Antichrist, the one on Big Pharma. But there's a lot of great resources out there. And it's not about what it's about. I mean, obviously we're thankful that we do have some good pharmaceuticals. Antibiotics, for example, generally a good thing. Uh, but uh, they, even they can be overplayed and become a bad thing. Uh, but by and large, it wasn't a benevolent endeavor when they started this. Uh, very wasteful and extravagant. Certainly that describes our country. It's a land of immigrants. That describes our country. Uh, you see, again, the occult aspects, especially within the governmental leadership. Uh, if you haven't watched Out of Shadows, I played some clips from that in my Spirit of the Antichrist series. Uh, and which we did here, and you and I've, I've talked about it before. You can find it at outofshadows.com or .org or something. But that goes into a lot of the occult, satanic ritual abuse. Uh, defenses reached up to outer space. Hmm, that's interesting. And what what have we seen happen in the last few years? A new branch of the military, the space force. Again, the setting of the stage. So here's my summary. I believe there will be a literal geographic Babylon in play in the end times. I think Rome will be in play in the end times. And I believe the United States could be in play based on specific characteristics of end times Babylon that at least today could only be fulfilled by America, or at least seems most naturally. So Babylon, I believe, politically refers to the headquarters of the beast during the tribulation. Religiously, it refers to the one world religion emanating from uh, Rome, I believe, uh, and obviously includes the apostate church. And then economically, it refers to the center of world commerce and power during the tribulation. So Babylon is essentially, and I think Mike, who's not here today, last week he mentioned this, uh, is a code name for the seat of the Antichrist power during the tribulation. I think, as I said, the rebuilt Babylon will be his political headquarters. The religious headquarters will have some connection to Rome. It's also going to have some connection to Roman Catholicism, but I believe ultimately it's going to be a pluralistic uh, religion. It's not like 
Roman Catholicism will be the satanic religion in the end times, or Islam. You know, a lot of people are, especially over the last, since 9-11, have been, uh, you know, talking about Islam and, and, and how terrible it is, and it is, no question, and they, uh, there are Islamic terrorists, no question. I've t uh, shared the platform with people like Sharam Hadian and others who've talked about that, but I think we need to keep it all in perspective that Islam's not the enemy, Satan's the enemy. And by the time Satan takes over the world after the rapture, Islam's just going to be one part of a religious melting pot. They're not the end times religion. Okay? Doesn't mean they're good. We, we have to be concerned because right now, just like in other times, you know, it was Rome or you know, other enemies you know, at different ages throughout human history. And there's certainly one now, but they're not the end times religion. And then economically, I think we're dealing also with a revolved, revived Roman Empire. A lot of people have tried to make connections to the European Union. Uh, I think it could be United States. I think it could also be, you know, Middle Eastern nations that are part of Europe from the Eastern side. So all of this, wherever there's money, I think that is going to play a role. But it just seems like if, there, if, if the rapture were to happen today, that in the same way that today the globalists go to Davos, you know, every year, Switzerland, uh, for the World Economic Forum, I think they will probably end up coming to New York City. That, that's my speculation. So, All right, any questions before we wrap up the first hour or comments or thoughts? Yeah. When you're looking at Isaiah 13, is it the fact that he's, He's just looking forward, and there's all of these future events happening. Is that why when he's talking about the Medes, that's just, it's future, but not as future, and that's why you can, you can tell by the context and what things are being talked about that he starts off talking about the tribulation and that sort of thing, and then he kind of moves towards a closer future, which is the Medes coming in. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's, you're, it's not always easy to tell in prophetic literature whether it's near or far. But if you pay close attention to the context, you'll see, well, this can't be immediate because it didn't happen, right? So uh, we were talking about Joel, Jeffrey, and I at the, uh, before we started. And, you know, that's another example where if you look at it closely, there are things that definitely happened in history. That's a telltale sign. But then there are also things that haven't happened and clearly won't happen until the end. So I think the prophets often merged together these things you know you've heard the illustration of you know looking out across you know space and you see two mountaintops but you don't realize there's this large valley between them well sometimes if you have the right angle the two mountains look like one mountain and so i think that's part of it is is just picking apart the context carefully but it's not easy and some things we just have to be not as dogmatic about right. yeah so the physical Babylon is being rebuilt today. Uh, it has been. Uh, I don't. I haven't checked on that. Would have been a good thing to research. I just didn't think about it. But uh, I know it's been in process for years since before 9/11, for sure. I'm not sure what the current state today is, but we know where it is. It's the ruins are there. Uh, if you remember, after 9/11, there were a lot of pictures of our military. You know stealing stuff and, and going in and desecrating some of the big uh, temples, which I guess is not a bad thing because they were all evil. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, in, it's definitely been being rebuilt. I don't know what the current status is today.
Who's doing the rebuild? It would be I Iraq. I mean, that's where it's located. So. so that means Iran. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Somebody else? Yeah. So when it's talking about the wild beasts like satyrs and owls and dragons, when do you think those all inhabited the, when do you think they will or when have they inhabited Babylon? So where are you in Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah yeah. 13, 21 through 22. So, I mean, they're probably, they were there in his day, because that's why he makes reference to them. Uh, I'd have to look at the context to see if he's talking about them coming back. Yeah, but it said that they, they're going to go there and they're going to have dole, they're going to lie there and dance there. Yeah. It's in the context of the Medes. I think it's probably part of that debate. Right. Yeah, if it's in that section, then it's probably part of that one. But we, we do know that obviously at this time in the tribulation, by the time the second half comes around, the earth is going to be totally devastated. I mean, it's going to be basically a return to the archaic times because of all the judgments of God, the judgments and wrath of Satan, the, the wars and all that. So uh, it's conceivable that you know you could have wild animals playing a more prominent role you know than than they are today today you know you depending on where you are you don't see wild animals right if you live out in the country you guys see them all the time but and we do too but you know if you can just imagine mountain lions you know walking down downtown denver you know that kind of thing when when the, when the devastation has happened yeah so, <clears throat> Is communism considered a religion? And if so, I don't, I don't hear it, or if I've read it, I've missed it in, Bible, in the Bible. But yet we have, obviously, the two largest populated nations on Earth right now, outside of India, communist nations. So is that considered a religion? That's a great question. So the question's about communism, and that would have been a better analogy that, that just I didn't think of in my mind in, to Islam. You know, back in the first half of the 20th century up to the 60s, communism was the enemy, right? Uh, and everybody thought communism was going to take over the world, and you had a lot of uh, theologians writing books about how communism is the end times religion. I don't think they considered a religion, but atheism by definition is a religion. So whether they admit it or not, it's a religion. But yeah, communism, we, we could have talked a lot about that. It certainly plays a role in the, in the setting of the stage because it's anti-God, it's everything contrary to what Scripture says, and it certainly is making people more amenable to and susceptible to the tyranny of the Antichrist when he steps on the stage. But it's not going to be a communist New World Order. But yeah, communism, like Islam, like a lot of these other things, are all part of the picture for sure. Yeah. A couple slides back, you had a word in there that started with pseudo. I got the pseudo part of it, but I didn't get the last part of that word. Yeah, pseudepigraphal. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, first century writings that are not inspired by God, written by uh, people taking on someone else's name. So. Is pseudonym? Right. A ghostwriter? Right. So it says Except they weren't, they were doing it. Uh, deceptively so they would say this is the epistle of peter passing themselves off as peter 
but they really weren't Peter. But yeah, that's the same root pseudonym. So, 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 so the, uh, the, a lot of the books uh, in the uh, uh, Catholic Bible that are part of the, uh, between the Old and New Testament, are pseudepigraphal. I'm glad you cleared that up. Yeah. I thought it was Norman <laughs> A friend of mine uh, just sent me his dissertation, a draft of it to review before he get, goes to the final defense, and uh, it's on the role. It's, it's, I forget the exact title, but it's a typical PhD title for a, for <clears throat> for a dissertation. But it's the pseudepigraphic angelology or something like that like what role does the pseudepigraphic writings do the pseudepigraphic writings play in our understanding of angels today something like that so yeah it just means non-inspired books uh that were written under a fake name yeah exactly yeah all right well we are I'm, i'm sorry you can come up to me afterwards but we are out of time i want to make sure everybody gets time for a break So we'll uh, dismiss. Those of you watching online, you can uh, come back and join us again. We'll probably start the live stream about 1025, give or take five minutes or so. Uh, And uh, those of you here, we'll start our service at 10 o'clock.